1: Welcome to the Football Writers' Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent and John Cross of The Daily Mirror. 18 wins on the bounce, 10 points clear at the top of the Premier League, four trophies within sight. Manchester City have picked up more league points in 2021, 33, than Liverpool, Spurs and Arsenal combined. They don't so much resemble a football team as a force of nature. They're on Champions League business this week against Borussia Mönchengladbach. But John, you were at the Emirates yesterday. Is this shaping into Pep's signature season? <laughs> yes, it is. And it has all the potential, I think, to do so.
2: I must say I'm someone now that has become slightly nervous about tipping man city for for the Champions League, simply because I think i've been there before when I think they they are by far and away the best team in in Europe right now playing the best football with arguably the best squad around and i I, I just think they're an absolute joy to watch but we've been here before you know we've been here in situations where I think they've been in equally good shape and they've done some crazy things, whether it be Fabian Delfoot full-back or suddenly moving He's Jesus to, to wing-back. And, and Pep sometimes, it feels like, has been trying to be too smart for his own good. But I just think he's found this amazing system yesterday. I mean, it was highlighted for me, I think, sort of, I think Mikel Arteta said pre-match, he said, I think Pep Guardiola's found his perfect system and it's his perfect system today where he doesn't have to play a striker. I mean, it's just it's just amazing how... We, we basically we used to think that i i don't know until about 10 years ago we used to think that playing a false nine was something quirky in England but now i just think it is it is city's dream set up basically i mean don't get me wrong he just has his moments aguero's now being back on the bench isn't he but i just think that city are the all encompassing total football team that that pass it around and can can beat anyone but with 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 that system and style And I think that there'll be a match for anyone, but they they, they do still worry me. I I, I fully expect them to kind of do that clean sweep again because they're so far ahead of everyone else, I think. Premier League terms, domestic terms, so they can win all domestic trophies. But they really should win the Champions League. This should be their year. This should be their opportunity. But uh, they've... They've slightly nibbled away at my faith, and they've they, they they slightly worry me. I didn't think they'd come back. If I am honest, in in mid December, I never thought they'd hit these levels again. Even though they they were hinting at playing such good football again, so I, I'd love to be proved wrong because I am just such a huge admirer of them. I think we're watching one of the truly great teams in English football history, but I am still slightly nervous just because of their their mess ups from even better places before. I think
1: to to amplify that point. Migs do we struggle to understand how good this team is because the opposition are almost subconsciously it seems accepting their fate so you've got matches like the game that you know you were at the Emirates as well yesterday where it, it pretty much resembled a, a sparring session after the early goal.
3: It feels like that's going to be the story this sees from here on in and uh, I mean it's used to happen with Manchester United in the 90s a few times in the 2000s where teams almost accept their fate and it's a it's a bit of a trading session for City with that I suppose an extra bit of symbolism to that given Arteta's former uh his former coach he was setting out cones for Pep again yesterday <laughs> and they just passed around them but no I, I I I I I do fear that 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 could be the case for all of the season I think the moment it's impossible to know when this run is going to end and it's hard to see where it's going to end I think Guardiola does deserve credit there and it's like I, I agree with Crossy in that mid early December. It didn't look like this was possible, but I think even more pointedly, when they lost that game to Spurs, Whitehall Lane, around that period, it did look like this could be that Pep was into this situation i we've seen from so many managers. A cycle had ended, like it happened to Pochettino with Spurs. It was as if he was trying to build another team and it was just proving too difficult. And there were a lot of murmurs at that time about the players being fatigued with like his intensity, just they, 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 kind of fancy to change. But even in that regard, it's no like what like Guardiola is almost as famous for anything else as uh, all those trophies as his his histrionics on the line. Whereas at the moment he doesn't look agitated on the line at all. Now, in fact, he was so, he was so like I was just sitting very close to him yesterday from my position in the press box at Arsenal, and he was he was so calm. And by the same token, it is as if this season he's took a step back, looked at the rigors of the schedule and how complicated this season is. And basically adjusted his team to play within that. And I wrote a few weeks ago, City figured out pandemic football. And one of the ways is he's he's worked out a way to have this balanced defense with a team that can really hurt you in so many areas. And I and like even with Arsenal yesterday, you would think City are susceptible to the break and players like Saka bursting forward, but they're not. There's very little space to break into. But equally, that can't be detached from the fact, look at the performance of John Stones, a lot of other clubs, given the wages he's on and who's barely used in the past few years, he would have been drummed out or they, they, would, they would have, they would have had to sell him on. City don't have those needs. And it's not a surprise that one of the clubs that can withstand this crisis and go on a run that was supposed to be impossible this season is one of their resources and that is essentially a state backed club.
1: Yeah, that, that speaks to the, the broader point, doesn't it, John? Is this nature of elite competition changing? You know, even before we get into the distortion of of this new Champions League, the bloated Champions League that's been talked about in twenty twenty four, who can actually challenge the state clubs? And by that I mean City and PSG. Uh, well, I think Liverpool can.
2: Listen, I think Leicester will finish in the in the in the top four. I think Manchester United, frankly, are a work in progress. I I I don't see it as. I don't see it as complete submission to that. I mean, I just feel, you know, PSG have suddenly become exciting uh, through, through Maurizio Pochettino taking over there. The result at Barcelona was was something else. We've all seen the stories about Real Madrid and sort of potential Saudi investment there. Other clubs are clearly trying to sort of catch up. But I, I, I have to say, I it's obvious, isn't it, that basically, I. <laughs> We've, we've rather pressed the reset button on UEFA's fair play rules, really. And since, since City took them on, I, I just can't see that they're basically worth the paper they're written on. And they're kind of, it feels like they're in limbo anyway because of the pandemic and basically owners being given carte blanche to spend, frankly. And so I do think that that's uh, we might as well sort of call a halt on them i always thought they were a false barrier anyway to to be honest i really didn't didn't like them i didn't didn't appreciate them but i i have to say i think that man city i i i um it might be an unpopular view here but i'm a huge manchester city fan i'm a fan of of the way that they've raised the bar under Pep Guardiola, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the way that they inspired Liverpool's improvement because they did. They had a point to proving that they're setting new records, they're they're playing some of the best football around. And listen, they've they have improved vast parts of the local community as well. <laughs> Sounding like Manchester City salesman and brochure here, but I I I, I personally. I, I, I'm quite a huge advocate of them. Listen, I get the I get the drawbacks. Please don't get me wrong. I, pl- I get the I get the negatives. I get the argument, but I kind of like and I look on with admiration for what they've done
3: for football. Well, the, the one the, the one thing I pick up on the local community. I mean, the common argument is that I know we're getting into deeper issues here, but that <laughs> the I mean, the line commonly said is that the re- regeneration stops at the border of the Etihad Campus, and essentially, it's almost as if they've used the club. To basically for Abu Dhabi to build a construction empire in Manchester which is mostly luxury flats rather than kind of affordable housing so I mean I, there, are, there are bigger issues there and in terms of raising the bar and what it's going to do for football this is where it really worries me because we could have a, a second treble in three seasons I, I don't think that's a case of raising the bar I think that's distorting competition because I, don't, I just don't I, I, and even clubs like Liverpool and like, to a degree this season points to although it's sort of it's divorce you can only push, when it comes down to resources, clubs can only push their limits for so long. And then eventually there is, I mean, we saw, it, to be fair, on, on, on a different scale, a different time, we saw it, we, we United for quite a while, where they'd see off pretty much every challenger until Chelsea were bought out by Abramovich. And this is what I, I, I think we could, but my fear is we could come back to look at this period as one where the great variety and competitive balance of the Champions League or sorry, of the Premier League, started to be a role. Well, let's see how it goes. And again, like I mean, the fact that Guardiola came back this season the way he did wasn't itself a surprise, which does speak to some of, some of the unpredictability to this. But if in three, four years' time we, we have a situation where City are again winning the League Cup every season as well as the title, and in seven out of eight, then I think, you know, we won't be looking at it as, as fondly. Mm. The,
1: the scary prospect, or scary for, for their opposition at, at the very least, is that this City team is still evolving. Guardiola is probably evolving as a coach. He seems to have taken a lot from his mentor, Juan Mio, this season. You add in Haaland to that team next season, and you've got a dynasty there, haven't you, John?
2: Yeah, Haaland is a really in, in, exciting prospect, and I know despite all, all, all the on-the-record denials, I do still think there might be something in Lionel Messi. But um, do they need, Do they need Messi, John? Well, the only thing I think about Messi is there's such a such a great team to watch and there's such a total football team that I sometimes wonder, do they need a focal point of, of a centre-forward? And I still think, despite Haaland's movement and despite him being absolutely typical kind of focal point centre-forward number nine, if you like, I still think that he's he's more of that mould than, than Messi. But I, I actually think that City are in a position where, if you actually look look at it logically and the amount of players that they are missing and short of, and perhaps they could do them both. I mean, Messi would be just a fabulous signing foot for the Premier League, in my view, simply because I just think he would be a great adventure and, and, and also still the best player in the world, arguably, to come over to English football, and we've not had that for, for quite a long time. Despite all everyone saying, you know, I think it is, the Premier League is a fabulous league, fabulous competition, we, we really needed the... We, well, we haven't had the best player in the world, I don't think, since Ronaldo left for Real Madrid all those years ago. So I think that would be a signature signing. And I think his movement and would play into City's style at the moment because I think that's moved away from having that focal point centre-forward. I, I think Haaland has got so much potential and so much scope for improvement And he's already such an exciting talent that he could be easily the best striker in in Europe for the next eight years or something like that, really. He's just got such an enticing player to to get. I'm just amazed that, you know, we all know about the history of his arrival at Dortmund, but I was amazed there wasn't more clamour for him when he actually moved in, in the original place. But I do think that City will surely have to strengthen again. But it feels like they've been back to their smart signings. Because Ruben Diaz has transformed them, Cancelo's taken a while, but has actually proved to be a really shrewd signing. And I just think that basically they, they, they've needed something up front for a while. And I mean, the, the scary thing is that they're so dominant now. If if they go and improve, where's the chance for
1: anyone else? But I personally think that's quite quite an enticing prospect. Mm. Are we looking, I Migs, mean, at if we look at this week's tie against Mönchengladbach, Gladbach? Does that game or that tie? almost capture the institutionalised inequality of European competition as we know it now, let alone in the future. You've got Marco Rose is going to, he's off to Dortmund to manage them at the end of the season. You've got bigger clubs, including Chelsea, we're told sniffing around Jonas Hoffman, their midfield player. It's almost, you know, we're at an exalted level of European competition here, the last 16 of the champions league. And City are essentially playing a selling club.
3: Yeah. I mean, and also, I did something with this a while back where if you look at the speed at which clubs are stripped now, it's much better. So IX 95, it actually, for all, I mean, that that happened just before the Bosman came in. But it still took four to five years for the core of that team to go. And, another, and between one and two, even to lose some of their best players. Should they got to the final the year after 95. Now, these days, IX 2019, the closest they've come to a final since pretty much all of that team, all of the key players were gone within a year, Barzic, So teams, if any, sort of, if any sort of club like that, any sort of outside of club gets any sort of success within one season, it's pretty much done. They don't even get the time to kind of go and, you know, possibly achieve or challenge what they should because all the vultures are already in. And yeah, and, and it's been points to kind of a long-running issue that we've discussed in the show as well, where the the, the reason that we're talking about this big transformation of the Champions League and change in structure. It isn't because of any problem with the actual structure of the Champions League. At 32-team events with eight groups of four, symmetrically it's fine. It should work perfectly, but the problem is the huge inequality between clubs, which means the, the first few months of the competition, the group stage, are a joke. And, and they, they can't address that, uh, that disparity, so they have to find all these w- w- ways around it, which is, co- which is possibly this strange Swiss-style system, and ultimately, where they hope... The ties we watch at this point of the season aren't really kind of what we presume is going to be a one-sided affair like City City uh Gladback and more kind of Barcelona PSGs. Although I think as, as we're gonna come on to the the Spanish clubs could have a few problems over the next few years themselves. Well that's it. Are are clubs in Italy and Spain in
1: danger of falling behind, you think, John? Because look at Bayern, for instance. You know, by common consent they're probably closest challengers to City at the moment. There at Lazio on Tuesday, Spanish clubs, I think three Spanish teams last week conceded 11 goals in their home European ties, (laughs) wherever they were played. What about the wider significance of the way that that the game is actually splintering across the continent? Yeah, I do think that is a concern. I mean, I don't think we should forget that... uh... (laughs)
2: I watched Bayern throughout last season, last season, so we're only talking a year ago, um, competition. And and to my mind, they were as dominant in, in European football terms as, as, as Manchester City are now. Bayern looked very, very good from early on. And then when, when Liverpool went out and clearly had their minds elsewhere, I, I would argue on sort of the Premier League, then Bayern was, was so obviously the best team in, in Europe. And, and, and Spanish football is clearly been for, for, for so long nervous about their own position and and they've been the big agitators haven't they in, in 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 a breakaway of their own listen i i i think that the swiss model has actually got big potential i think the reshaping of this has got major potential with also very obvious major flaws in that basically that they're they're trying to impose a self-protection here of the, of their own position so they qualify year on, year in, year out. But, but you know, whether that's through kind of reaching that, first, you know, going beyond the first knockout stage, if you like, or kind of qualifying for the second round. But I do think we we are witnessing a lot of dead group games here. I think we had a glimpse of the future last season when I think the the, the final stages of that tournament, when it was one-off games, in the Europa League and Champions League, if we cannot see that maybe European football needs a little bit of a shake-up, because that was so good, that was so entertaining, that was so amazing. And I know it was it was unprecedented circumstances and one-offs and we'd never see that again. Well, we should do, because that was brilliant TV, brilliant entertainment, fabulous. And I just think that whether that leads into a splinter tournament for UEFA or however it might be then I think it's a shame. But I still think there's so many hurdles. It's like everyone's presenting this thing as, as UEFA are putting forward their proposals and everyone will accept it and it plays into, into what the European Clubs Association want. I don't see it like that at all. I think the European Clubs Association still want more power. They still want more say and they do not want UEFA to be the, both the regulator and the commercial partners. They're the ones that are putting in the risk as they see it. They're the ones that are attracting the big TV deals. So why should UEFA be be trying to sort of jump on this and, and control both? No wonder UEFA want to champion it and push it through very quickly. But I don't see that it will be. UEFA are trying to get all the leagues on board for their plan, but the ECA are not, have not signed up as i understand it to to the these proposals in in their current form largely because they they, they they don't agree with the way that UEFA are trying to sort of govern it completely they've had i think they've had enough of UEFA trying to be the all encompassing all controlling body but i suppose
1: it begs the question Migs, who should run the game what is the game run for or who is it run for at the moment you've just got the big clubs Throwing their weight
3: around. Well, this is, I mean, and I think there is always an issue where UEFA are supposed to be the safeguard of the game. Yet at the same time, they're also technically in competition with bodies like the Premier League, like FIFA. I mean, the Champions League is ultimately competing for the same sort of kind of sponsorship deals and the rest as as other competitions, and that does create a little bit of tension there. But at the same time, I would I would say UEFA's running of the game is genuinely, and it, certainly in the last two three years is is an attempt to safeguard and protect the wider game and what, what's like I mean the real problem when, when, when the big clubs talk about how, how they're the ones that bring the money in this is something I have a real issue with because it's, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling process and it becomes about who's good at the right time if we were having this discussion in the 1990s when Nantes were winning the French League and suddenly, you know, really taking the event as close in the semifinals of the Champions League, Nantes could be one of Europe's biggest clubs. That is an exaggeration. There's a certain amount of luck. But Because we're in an era where football has basically embraced every single capitalistic measure possible, where there's so little safeguards for football, there's so little checks and balances, we have this cycle where a, these, this certain group of clubs do well at a certain time that attracts... More money, which makes the T and more TV deals at the moment, obviously, and, and better prize money, which allows them to strengthen, which brings more fans, which brings more money, which makes them stronger, to the point where we have this situation where this, there's this immense disparity, where there's nine clubs with a revenue of four hundred million, and a load of them that can't really get close, and you have these. Like a, a club like Dortmund, who who are one of Germany's great clubs, so many titles. And what are they? They're a little bit of a husk. I mean, they're all well run, all the rest of it, but they're still a bit of a husk. Whose main whose main purpose at this point is bringing through young players and ultimately selling them off rather than actually competing. And that is a direct consequence situation we're we're, we're talking about here. And big clubs throwing their weight around. And that's and the only thing that's actually driving it is greed. I would say at least UEFA's for for all the issues that that, that raised raised about. You know, how the big clubs see UEFA from that. I think UEFA are at least trying to preserve a competition with a bit of competitive balance and a bit of variety around Europe, whereas the big clubs aren't. They just, they just want to preserve their place. And another, another classic indication of this issue is, alongside these discussions for the, uh, the 2024 restructuring the Champions League, there's also discussions about prize money and where the money from the Champions League is actually going to go. Because this is a major issue because it, the, the Champions League prize money is one of the biggest drivers of financial disparity in Europe because all the clubs in the competition become so wealthy. Well, in the last round of negotiations, the I think the figure for to be given out, the solidarity figure basically, to be given to clubs not in Europe so they don't, they don't completely get stripped away was 8.5%. Now, the European League's wanted to boost that money up to 20% to make a more equitable Europe. And, you know, that sounds quite sensible, really, because it prevents this this situation. What actually happened was the big club has flexed their weight. It dropped further, I think, to just over 7%. And that's the situation we're in, where just this group of clubs is just accumulating more and more money and become more and more box office. And it it, it does depress me that. Even if if you look at this week, it, it, it was pointed out how Mbappe was the first player since Andrei Shevchenko to score a hat-trick at the camp now. Well, that situation is almost impossible now because, A, that was a night when Dynamo Kiev battered Barca 4-0 camp now. But, but you know, in today's game, Shevchenko wouldn't still be there. Kiev would be, again, a bit of a husk of a team. And it does depress me that, like, even in the late 90s, when a lot of these problems started... There was a real variety to the Champions League. There were like, so many clubs that could become good. There were a lot of exciting clubs who were, would now be considered unfashionable. And that's just not really possible now. And if anyone does become good for any brief period of time, then they'll be, ripped, they'll be ripped apart within a year.
1: Yeah. You see, I'm getting a sense of, how can I put it, elegant desperation, John. If you look at Real Madrid, who actually, when you think about it, are, are possibly quite vulnerable this week against Atalanta. Mm. As you mentioned earlier on, You know, they're looking for money from Saudi Arabia, £130 million sponsorships been spoken of. That, to me, is a a big sign of changing times. Do you think Saudi Arabia will be the next state to fund a team? Well, absolutely, if if they have their way,
2: without a shadow of doubt. It is interesting at the moment, isn't it, That, that basically there's a lot of controversy surrounding Saudi Arabia it comes at when the spotlight is shining so brightly at the moment on that in terms of news we've seen that in the in the past week or so haven't we it's interesting even at the moment we keep on being reminded that the sort of the queen now doesn't like to be pictured with with Sheikh Mohammed you know sort of because of the controversy over his daughter but it's just I you know it's there's no doubt about it it brings up controversy and it's not it's not one that's very sort of kind of appetizing here but I have to say that if we go back even to sort of the potential investment into Newcastle Newcastle I don't think was in any way stopped because over a moral issue in many ways over the behavior of potential investors there it really wasn't and also by the way where do you draw the line on potential investment. It was purely done because uh, I think uh, of the TV and the piracy issue which which they just couldn't stomach. They could stomach other things but they wouldn't stomach the TV rights being sold down the river. Well, <laughs> sorry, but that, that says it all really. So, clubs I think are, are, are not going to be shy. They're not going to be afraid to take over investment that helps them to punch in a level playing field really. But, I, I just think we've got to be rather careful, I think, uh, over taking the moral judgment here. Please, this is not me advocating the behaviour and scruples of of any nation in the world, but I do think where on earth do you draw the line? And, and, And that's the issue. Do we want to see, listen, when we talk about the kind of the level playing field, I guess you're absolutely right. We don't want to see a champions league dominated by one club for a decade, do we? We also don't want to see a premier league that's completely dominated by just one team, it is being dominated by Manchester City at the moment. But having said that, let's talk about last season when when it's very very difficult, I think, to dominate the Premier League for more than three years just because of the huge demands on it. And I still think that that's still quite a long way off. But I do think we've got to be got to be careful clearly in terms of investment and in terms of where we go. I think Real Madrid are desperate because they are in such a mess. Look at their team. Hmm. You know, it's just it's just a joke of a team now. They used to be. You, you, I mean, I, I'm someone who watches a hell of a lot of European football and sort of Spanish football, and I love it. And uh, there's been points in time when Real Madrid and uh, Barcelona, you could name their team uh, as as a world class starting eleven off the top of your head. But where do you start now with with a Barcelona and B Real Madrid? I mean, they're both two teams in such an unbelievable mess, and they are desperate because they've made several several bad decisions. And yet Real Madrid just went on this sort of kind of fantasy reunion with Zidane and probably you know, probably probably do something again similar if it goes too much further wrong for themselves in in Europe. And and that's the plain truth of it. But they're desperate because they are in European terms. Falling behind all the big guns, they're no longer considered among the sort of the Champions League favourites at all.
3: And what, what brings a lot of this discussion to a head is, and what what sums it up, when when Paris Saint Germain went to buy Neymar in, in twenty seventeen, I was like, one of the strategies behind that was they felt and it, it was an astronomical fee, you know, they met, met the buyout, but and the wages were immense. But what I was told was. Paris Saint-Germain realized that it, 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 that they could basically short squeeze the football market which is if they if they drove fees and wage up to a certain point they knew only a certain amount of clubs could compete and two of those obviously the Manchester clubs because united have you know, such a revenue making machine and one of them potentially chelsea but they didn't consider the spanish clubs capable of going to that level basically because their ownership structure which i think is one is remains one of the positive elements of, of Spanish football is two big clubs in that way and which they're, they're owned by by their fans and socios. But that basically prohibited internal and external investment at a time when that's basically shaping the game more than anything. And hence we have Florentino Perez, the Madrid president, pushing for European Super League and also potentially doing these deals with Saudi Arabia because they're looking for any way to make extra money. And I think we could well be in for a fallow period for Spanish football in that sense because... There isn't the investment right
1: now. No, well, interestingly, you know, the, what we obliged to call the big two in Spain, they're behind Atletico, who are three points clear in La Liga, despite having not kept a clean sheet for seven league games, which I think is the first time in 10 years, and certainly the first time under Simeone... They lost 2-0 at Le- Levante at the weekend. There was a, a bit of comedy gold when Oblack was, was caught upfield for the decisive second goal. They seem to be in a dip at the wrong time, don't they, John? They're playing Chelsea in Bucharest. What about Chelsea? Is Thomas Tuchel starting to impose himself there?
2: Yeah, he absolutely is. I mean, it wasn't such a great result uh, or performance, indeed, was it Saturday? I have to say, I just, no, I was a bit sceptical. I just think that... that Tuchel is so combustible and so combative, really, that I I just think some, at some stage it'll end in tears. We both I think we all know it, don't we, really? <laughs> um, but I do think he's, he's certainly got a reaction, a response from that team. And in the end days of Frank Lampard, you kind of think, oh, he just needs a few games to turn it around. And Chelsea desperately need to get into the top four. And that, that was the parameters of the engagement, really, wasn't it? I just think that, in retrospect... I I do think that Chelsea have got every right to say, look, we were proved right to to make the managerial change. We needed a new spark. We needed new invention. It's interesting, isn't it, that that kind of one of his first things to do, despite not really always sort of investing in the the, the back three before previously, you know, he's gone back to a back three rather, and just to give Chelsea a bit more solidity. He didn't play particularly well on Saturday, but that was one of their first games where they've slightly dipped away Calling it on with Hudson Adoy was really interesting. Basically, really called him out publicly. That was brutal. Saying that basically, when when it, when he brought him on, he basically didn't reach the standards expected, and then withdrew him. But then sort of tried to draw a line on the, under it very quickly afterwards. I do think you're seeing a difference in in, in Werner. I think he's, although he's quickly worked out that Werner's so much more effective either playing away from home through the middle or or indeed sort of playing wide of a main striker at home. And I just think that that those he's got Chelsea playing a lot better. I would have said a month or so ago, I thought that Atletico would be very, very clear favourites. They're playing very, very well. I mean, Trippier has been a revelation when when he's been available. By the way, I mean, you shouldn't overlook that. And that's an amazing story, really. And I just think that it, it, he's. I think now, I still make Atletico favourites. If I'm if I'm honest, I still think that basically the. Got, got some really good players in there, and I still make them just favourites. But I do think now it's 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 available for Chelsea. I think if they play well, they can they can do it. Whereas I think a month ago I would have said no, Atletico will definitely go through.
1: Do you think we should be asking more questions of Werner Miggs? I look at him and I just see someone still making poor decisions too often.
3: There's a bit of yeah. There's a bit of that, and that it feels like. Maybe he's not quite as mature yet as a player as we might have thought when he was signed. He's still got a bit of developing to do. At the same time, with the positions he gets into with a willingness, I, I've no, I've never been even through this run, I've never been overly concerned by him, I'd say. I, I think he will come good. I mean, there's been cases of this in the past of kind of I mean remember Andy Cole's first or his second season at Manchester United in '95, '96, actually, when he was a bit of a joke. And then of course comes goes on to be re-establish himself as one of England's great strikers. And some of actually Werner's form in this season has a little bit reminded me of that. Because I, I do think there is a really high-class forward in there. But at the moment, he needs more polish. He needs to, get that, he, he needs to restore his confidence. And I mean, I, I was at the Chelsea game on Monday against Newcastle and there was such a telling moment in that. Like, his face was a story in itself. When he got his goal, then when it looked like we was going to be ruled off, and then it was given. So like we had kind of joy to real anxiety and despair to uh, to relief all in the space <laughs> of a few minutes. I do think he'll be a, he'll end up being a very good signing for the club. Whether we see enough of that this season is open to question. Because I I think Chelsea have a I think Chelsea have a really decent chance at a Champions League this year. Obviously the league's beyond them. And Crossy's right. I think this was Saturday was their first slip in that sense, but I think they've generally been quite solid in Lartuco. But as much as anything, they've got broadly a good approach, even if one they're getting used to. But also they've got massive strength and depth in a congested calendar and in a Champions League season that may actually favour clubs who aren't you know, in a title race or don't have the same... Company. Chelsea still have a bit of a, a bit of pressure to get top four, but I think they'll end up getting that quite comfortably. And uh, there's another thing about the Champions League in that sense. It's amazing how much, because of the gap between fixtures how much the complexion can change from one day to the next, and especially from the group stage to the, to the knockout stages. And Atletico are a bit of a strange club in that way as well. I mean, for all Simeone has... I mean, he achieved a miracle winning the title there in 2014. Yeah, it, it still feels like... I mean, that club is almost... The, the most neuro, psychologically neurotic club. Like, with more hang-ups, I think, than anyone. Even, even more so, I would say, than, than Everton with Liverpool over 21. I mean, what see, like if you look at them... <laughs> Simeone gets them to the Champions League final twice which is both defeats themselves and what happens they end up losing to the club that they hate more than anyone else in the, in the worst possible circumstances a last minute equaliser and a penalty shootout and so they still have a lot of complexes particularly as regards the Champions League and just come into form at a bad form at a slightly wrong time they're only, they're only three points ahead of Real Madrid in the title race now as well it, it could be there for Chelsea
1: When you look at alternative models John I, I always settle on Leicester. You know, they're well-funded, not extravagantly funded, but well-funded. They're brilliantly coached. The recruitment is strategic and, you know, farsighted. They've got faith in younger players. We saw that the weekend with Luke Thomas, I thought was exceptional at left back following the James Justin injury. Should we be taking Leicester more seriously? As as what though? Well, I I, yeah, I, I, know, I I I see them as potential winners of the Europa League, for instance. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. It's funny, isn't it?
2: It was. It, we we I, I was engrossed in sort of all the European action last week. I was lucky enough to have sort of the week off, and so I kind of sat back and me, sat back on my sofa and watched literally every game that I possibly could. And it, it's so weird that basically Leicester was just an afterthought. It's kind of a bit of a footnote. I know it's the least interesting result, arguably, because it's nil-nil away in Prague, and it's. But they, you know they're playing a team that's running away with the, with the with the Czech League and the sort of scoring goals for fun, basically. And so it's a half decent result to go back home, and they should go through. But I do think they can win win the Europa League and, and win a European trophy. You immediately then say, though, don't you? Oh, yeah, but they'll have to beat Manchester United. Well. I I think that, that frankly they're playing better football than Man United. I know they're sort of jockeying. I think they've got for, a better manager as well between them. Yeah, absolutely. I I I you know, I think that Brendan Rodgers is such a good coach. I I'll be honest, I just can't I can't believe that there's still so much I think I think part of the problem is guys, I don't know whether you agree, is that basically I do think that Brendan Rodgers still invokes this should we be taking him seriously? I was driving home from the from the Emirates last night and they're sort of having this discussion over whether sort of Rodgers would would see it as a, as a set, step up or step down to manage Spurs. And it's just, I think the, the outcome was that it probably at this moment in time, it'd be a step down. But honestly, there's so much snobbery over Brendan Rodgers and indeed Leicester. But Brendan Rodgers, I think, is arguably the, the most exciting and, and, and best British coach around. Yeah, I think he does a terrific job with with young players and develops teams. He gets them playing such a sort of fluid and and, and way, which is full of flair and excitement. And I Liverpool came too soon. Life lessons were learned, but I just think you know he could let's let's. Let's also forget, not forget. He could have easily gone back to, to to Swansea for the second coming, which would have been a disastrous career decision. And I don't, I'm not sure that he would have even come back from that. But Celtic, we're seeing now that Celtic, he, he won everything, but basically it's still, still, I think something to to be admired. He sort of re, re, regrouped, restructured, and came back, and he's doing an amazing job at Leicester. Mm. And I just think that, arguably, Leicester maybe need to do get some silverware or something like that. And the Europa League fits into that category for For the rest of the country to sit up and take notice of what is an incredible job I think that he's doing at, at, at the King Power. I think in any other season, it would be a much more level title race and they would be right in the thick of it. But because City have pulled clear, that then basically we're not even giving them the credit they deserve of being second and third at the moment and making a sort of a fist of it. But I, I think... They don't get the credit or or the
1: respect that they deserve. You yeah, what I like about Brendan Rodgers is that he seems to be growing, both personally and professionally, which brings us on to a certain Jose Mourinho mix. You know they've got the form. Spurs have got the formality of of their return leg in the in the uh, Europa League on Wednesday. There was just a line. That he came up with yesterday about his coaching methods being second to nobody in the world—that's self-delusion on an epic scale, isn't it?
3: I mean, I saw that and it just struck me as desperation, to be honest. It's basically I mean, he did this at Manchester United towards the end as well, where he went—he uh, went in that strange heritage rant. Well, it's not—it wasn't really a rant, I suppose. It was just a strange press conference after he got knocked out by Sevilla and started to argue, you know, about. Well, his own Champions League legacy against United, and it it does just feel like someone grasping a previous success because they can't answer questions about current problems, and it's, it's Spurs and him have a lot of them. This is the worst run of his career. He's never had a spell where he's gone five defeats in six league games. Not even when he was at Laria, you know, a, a mid-table Portuguese team, and when he when he was one of the one, one of the uh, on, on the way to becoming an all-time great. But the problem is the methods that made him an all-time great. Or whatever he's doing at Spurs now just aren't working. I mean, and that's that's a team in so many games lately. Ever ever since teams have well, to be fair, ever since kind of Kane and Son have kind of their form has dropped off a bit. But that would I mean that was never going to be sustainable because they were so good early on. But teams have realised there's not that much to them in attack, and so often in games they look lobotomised or as if they're just trying to get it to one of the stars to do something brilliant which, of course, is always going to be hit and miss. I mean, you, you could argue there's maybe a little bit similar with United and Bruno, but I think there's m- more about United at the moment. And it just, it just looks all so lifeless and flat. Whether Levy's going to... I mean, we are at the point now where we will be talking about Mourinho's future, but from what you hear, and I think you could also see it in the Amazon documentary, there's this sense that Levy is under his spell, that Mourinho was the manager he always wanted to, wanted to, to get... I mean, and then there was always that giveaway line in the, um, in the in that Spurs documentary where Levy described... He was talking about the two best managers in the world. One's already in the Premier League, and one is Jose Mourinho. Brilliant as Jose Mourinho once was, and he was at one point the best manager in the world. He, I, think, I don't think anyone can question that. He will be an all-time great. I don't think anyone serious in football was realistically saying that Mourinho was one of the two best managers in the world or anywhere close to it when Spurs appointed him in November 2019. And the brutal reality is... What is happening now is pretty much what everyone predicted would happen with Spurs when making this appointment. The only issue is, I think it's probably even quicker than everyone expected. And Spurs have themselves to blame for that. It's, I mean, it would be impressive if Mourinho gets him out of this, I have to say, but it's difficult to see right now. Well, he's certainly got the lowest win
1: percentage of any Spurs manager since Wande Ramos, so that probably says a lot as well. John, why simply doesn't he invest Emotionally, tactically, in Gareth Bale, who actually transformed the game yesterday, and Delielli, didn't he just? I mean, Gareth Bale.
2: I mean, it was. I was at the Emirates and so sat and watched the the, the West Ham Spurs game its entirety before I left. And I just, I mean, I, it, Spurs were a bit shambolic first half, and then basically second half, it was like the second coming of Gareth Bale. I mean, listen, everyone knows that Gareth Bale, the Gareth Bale we're watching now. I think even Gareth Bale and even his sort of closest allies basically would admit he's not the same player that he was. But Gareth Bale went to went to went to Spain basically success-wise the greatest British export of all time hasn't played regularly for what two years, and I just think once you once you sign that player, well, to give him any chance, any chance of getting back vaguely back to where arguably I would say he was yesterday, you've got to play him. And it's, it was borne out that he played in, in the week and then basically, he then comes on at halftime and was fantastic, I thought. He was, he was the change, I think, that for, for Spurs and, and it changed the, the direction of travel and direction of the game. And he was so influential. He provides the corner for, for the goal to come back. He hits the crossbar. He's driving runs. He's impetus. Spurs came so close to getting an equaliser. And, and Gareth Bale was at the heart of that. And you turn, I, I, I felt like turning around and screaming. See, Gareth Bale can play, still play football after all. I mean, I just, I, I am Gareth Bale's biggest fan. I have to say, I, I don't think he's had nearly the amount of credit or respect that he, he, he's, he's deserved for what he achieved at Real Madrid. And I just think that he, to go, to do so much to get him back, I just think is a failure on the manager's part. And yes, we all know that he wants to be just right and just so. To play games, but Mourinho's treatment, I think, of certain players, and this goes back to sort of Deli Alley as well, is is just prehistoric. I don't think that you can treat those players like that anymore in the way that you maybe could say fifteen, sixteen years ago when when he when he was doing it at Chelsea and he invoked this sort of spirit that, that every Chelsea player would run through brick walls for him. His famous sort of kind of. Untouchables remark that certain players would just always be in that in that team. He just can't there's certain players that clearly love him and look at Kane and Son. I mean, they're just having the season of their lives. Hoiberg has been his signing. But his failure to do better with, with Deli Alley is a failure because Dele Alli is a decisive player. Dele Alli must share some of this blame as well, because he's clearly sometimes his performance levels haven't been good enough when he has had a chance. But it's very difficult to be dropped in and out, I think, as well, and that then injuries have, have mounted up. Harry Winks, his treatment of it... Harry Winks, is like died in the Wolf Spurs fan. He's, he's, he's missed a Tottenham Hotspur, would die for that club. And yet has been clearly international quality player, yeah, I just think his treatment of him and sort of total misuse and disregard of, of of the homegrown talent like that is also, is is incredible. It's just unfathomable. And I think his man management is is perhaps the biggest failure I, I can see. Because this is a team that, title challenges in December, they're, they're fall from grace. It's been spectacular. They've got, the, you know, they've got the Europa League to cling to. They've got the cup final appearance to cling to. But... Really, this season, the goals absolutely spot on. This season, is going from bad to worse. It's really not acceptable.
3: And, and also, I mean, the League Cup will be the great defence, I suppose. But I mean, with the greatest mm. respect, look at look at the run he's had. A bye, you know, two championship clubs. It's I mean, it's it's not exactly been the most difficult run right, in terms of kind of putting putting merit and the very the idea of getting to a final. But beyond, I mean, just picking up on what Crossy said about man management. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Mourinho's always had this thing where he describes as confrontational leadership where he does things to provoke players. And that worked really well with figures like Zlatan. And I think the word he, Mourinho used to always describe was warriors. And he would have had that, like, say, look at the defence at Inter Milan or Chelsea. But this is a, a different generation of players who come through a different style of coaching. And one of the stories you already hear from around Spurs is that Mourinho tries to play what the players describe as games, where, like, you know, he's... He's he's really with you one moment, and it's, it's like someone always trying to keep you on your toes. But it just it's it's not building the connection the same way. These players don't react to it in the same way, you know. Or him trying to get a response, and it isn't getting a response where it matters most, the pitch. Because when you look at it, Migs,
1: what we what we're talking about here, you know, beyond the tactics board, you know, the salt and pepper pots, is actually football as a flesh and blood game, and the best managers are you know they use their experience wisely they have a natural humility but also they have an ability to actually relate to their players as fellow human beings and you know when saying that I'm talking essentially about Carlo Ancelotti he has essentially three priorities form relationships with his players Make sure that the owners and the board get nowhere near them. And the only way he can do that is by winning matches. So if you do that, everything falls into place. He's having a great season, isn't he?
3: Yeah, he is completely. And it's too, uh, I have to say, I was a little bit skeptical of the point because I, th- I think clubs like Everton that are trying to bridge gaps, I always think they should be trying to get ahead of the game and point, like, say, what Spurs did with Pachettino rather than kind of managers on the way down. But at the same time, he's had a brilliant effect. The, the one thing I've always thought about Ancelotti, though, and especially as regards his relationships, and I, I think it's re- relevant to what we're talking about, the, the best managers all are the absolute all-time greats who in league title after league title always strike me as... I mean, they're pretty intense characters. And Ancelotti, his, his actual league record for all the clubs he's been at isn't that brilliant. And I, I've often wondered whether it's almost because he's just... Too normal, nice a bloke to really have that kind of zealotry, and it's why players like. But I think it's possibly why his teams have done well in cups or in knock or in the Champions League, say, and it, and it's why everyone speaks well of him. He's just basically just a good, likable bloke, and we are seeing the positive effects of that at Everton.
1: Yeah, to Liverpool's detriment, certainly in the short term. Dwelling on Liverpool as we bring this to a close, John. Are Liverpool now almost beyond the point of no return this season? Oh, well, they've still
2: got the Champions League. I mean, <laughs> I don't think defensively they're, they're, they're in any way good enough or reliable enough. If indeed Jordan Henderson is out for a matter of weeks, then that's a serious blow to their to their makeup to their axis, because what do they do from here? You know, they're running out of centre-halves, basically. It sort of did take a a couple of punts in late in the window, didn't they? And it does seem inconceivable that Liverpool are in this situation whereby they left themselves with so little options in, in central defence. And I think, ultimately, that'll be their Achilles heel. You just can't possibly, I don't think, rely on sort of untried, untested players at the top end when you're trying to win the win the Premier League, let alone... Challenge in Europe, and I think they'll get undone on that. So I do think their, their their season is is beyond the point of no return. Really, I mean, I'm fascinated by Thiago Alcantara because he's just one of those players that I I, I I just have loved watching up until this season. He's just one of my favourite players. It's just the way that he keeps ball, keeps the ball, and dominates games. I just thought, oh, this will be fantastic, you know, see Liverpool play a slightly different way. But let's be honest here. You know, they were signing a player that that you have to play a different way because Liverpool were all about speed, pass and move, and lightning counter attacks. Well, that's not Thiago. And it just just not worked so far. And, and, And people are trying to find excuses for him. And I don't know that you need to find excuses for him, but just have to hold up your hands and say, well, that player at this time is not what the fit that Liverpool needed. And the, I think the Allison's looking vulnerable because the, he's not convinced about the defence in front of him. The midfield, the balance is now wrong, and it's not. They're missing Henderson, but they've also got a sort of a strange component in there which is not firing in, in Tiago. And the front three are are lacking the same sort of supply line, but also the same confidence and belief that they had last season. I don't know that it's completely. Completely broken down, in his terminal. Because when you get players back, they'll, they'll improve, and I think they'll go again next season. But it does bring you to a point in time when you think, mm, is this the time when I think that Liverpool did back the, the, the manager heavily in the, in the last transfer window? You know, eighty million pounds odd spent in the in the summer. But does does he need to even look at the front three to completely rebuild and, and to go again? and Those are the sort of questions. I've no doubt that Liverpool will come back under Klopp. He's still got the energy and he's still got the drive, and I still think they will win the title again under Klopp in the future. But I do think we've reached a point in time when perhaps he needs to reexamine whether there is a complete rebuild and there is a complete new generation of a Liverpool team that needs to be rebuilt
1: to do that. Um, injuries are an obvious element of the decline, but what have they revealed in a broader sense, Migs? You know, I am looking at their recruitment. You know, John was did say okay, they did spend money in the summer. But is the intrinsic difference between them and Man City is that City can pay forty odd million for Nathan Ake, a centre half, they were really unlikely to use that much, whereas you know essentially Liverpool was were shopping in in Poundland, weren't they, in the last days of January? Is that the intrinsic difference between the two clubs?
3: W- one of them, yes, uh, and I think you're absolutely right, and uh, yeah, as you say, it's it's it is it does sum it up that the £40 million signing that City haven't really missed or haven't needed that much is pretty much precisely what Liverpool read right now and what is kind of undoing their whole season given, the, you know, as we've discussed so many times, the, the effect on the whole team. I suppose there's another angle there in that when Liverpool were going very well last season, there was all, the you know, their their backroom team and the recruitment was praised to the heavens as if this, this was all some sort of meticulous plan. I think it still indicates that I mean, suddenly, we're not hearing so much about Michael Edwards at the moment. But I'm not, this isn't to criticise Edwards. But I think it's more so. It still proves a point that I mean, obviously, best practice in football is to have everything very well run and to have the right structures in place. But we're still it's still a game to a degree that is dictated by having the right manager in place. And if you have the right manager in place, it will make everything else look better. So I still think most of Liverpool's what's happened there is still true, and all success is attributable to Klopp. Which is, of course, why he deserves backing now. And uh, there is a view within the club that once they have all their players back, these problems won't look so bad. But ultimately, it, it is Liverpool are one of the super clubs. There are one of the, they are one of those clubs that have immense global revenue beyond anyone else. But even there, there's a gap between them and Man City, which I suppose hints to some of the maybe the potential danger of what's going to happen in English football that we are talking about. But they, they do have issues this season, but I, I do wonder, I mean, we, we've kind of to touched on this a bit over the pod, whether this could be a Champions League season like that period between, basically when, when the competition first expanded in 99 to become 32 teams and have loads of clubs from, to have four clubs from the top nations. And it was about five to six years there where a lot of the biggest clubs actually struggled to cope with dual demands of an expanded Champions League and a title race. And it meant you had a lot of clubs that were having bad domestic seasons, uh, or struggling, winning the Champions League. Madrid won it, tw- won it when they were twice in their fifth. Milan won it I think when they were third and fourth. Liverpool won it when they were fifth. And it is possible, given given the kind of the effect the Champions League night can have on clubs, and when they are good teams, and Liverpool remain an exceptional team if just on a bad run and suffering injury issues, but they can raise it on single nights. And I think that that's why maybe people are looking at them a little bit ominously as regards the Champions League and there's the possibility we could have a 0405 4 5 season.
1: That would be an interesting proposition, wouldn't it? To, to sum it all up, you know, we're in the decisive phase of, of the toughest season at the end of a brutally intense year. I think the life cycles of teams and managers have accelerated because the demands are relentless. Now, I'm not blaming Jurgen Klopp for Liverpool's problems. I'm more inclined to be honest, to point the finger at Liverpool's owners. They probably need to invest heavily in a rebuild. Instead, it seems that John Henry, along with Joel Glazer, is preoccupied by making more money at the expense of the rest of English football. That's an imported form of greed, pure and simple. Do you agree? Please let me know either way. In the meantime, thanks to John and Miguel And to you for listening to the Football Writer's Podcast.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?